Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Get a fresh new start And a network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Trail Lewis And believe it or not, it's sunny outside After it snowed yesterday, six inches And I have the author of Green Leaf Murders here, Richard's here, and this book is really, you, you got to get it because this is so cool, and it's different. Young architect Rin Fontaine lands her dream job restoring Greenleaf House, New York's finest Gilded Age mansion, to its glorious days, but old columns have old secrets, mm. and Stephen Greenleaf has ones of his own, so I'm not going to tell you any more. Welcome to MJ Network. <laughs> MJ is a memory of my sister, Marcia Joyce, that started me off, and you you decided um, the cover has the picture of, well, the sort of the house, right? So give us a short summary, and I know this is based on a real house because I looked it up. So tell us about this house and how you created the mirror in it. Mm. Well, I, I, yeah, I was reading about a, a an old house that was built in the late 19th century uh, by mm-hmm. a steel magnate, and his name was uh, Charles Schwab, although he's no relation at all to the brokerage Schwabs, um, just a coincidence. And uh, at that time, the west side of New York was considered the unfashionable side of town. All the, all the uh, really uh, rich and fashionable people were building on Fifth Avenue. And uh, he thought the west side was up and coming. So he built a mm. 75-room mansion. It's believed to be mm. the largest single-family residence ever built in New York City. Uh, it, was, uh, it was enormous. Unfortunately, he couldn't keep it up very long, and uh, particularly after the Depression, uh, it became a real white elephant. Nobody could live in it. Nobody could afford it anymore. And, and sadly, it was torn down, and uh, an apartment complex was put mm. up, which is still there, and it's called the Schwab Apartments. In fact, I even know some people who live there. Um, but um, so it's, it's, it's just a memory, although there are plenty of photos around. And uh, I just mm. wondered, what if it had still been around today? What would that be like? Who would, who would be living in it today? What would their lives be like? That, that's interesting. I, I you know, something yeah. after you did that, I looked up where I grew up in the South Bronx. Not the most beautiful neighborhood in the world. And the the building yeah. is still there, but they actually did something to the front of it that made it look better. But you wouldn't want to walk around there, trust me, on Southern Boulevard and Tremont in the Bronx. But, yeah. I know. You I know wonder- yeah, I mean, yeah, neighborhoods have come and gone in New York. Uh, your neighborhood yeah. that used to be. Uh, you know, poor became rich. Those were they were fashionable. Often went uh, down. It's, uh, it's a wonderful thing about uh, writing about cities, because they're in constant change. Uh, yeah, sort of been for centuries. Yeah, it's it's sad. I know, and I'm glad I moved up here. So, in the present, tell us about Wren and why is her firm asked to restore this mansion the way it was before? That's what made it really intriguing. 
No, thanks. Ren Fontaine is a young architect, and as we found out, uh, she's, uh, her father is an architect. Her father is a renowned, a world-famous architect, uh, famous for his modernist housing, and, uh, and he, named, uh, he named her after Sir Christopher Wren, uh, who was a great uh, English architect uh, hundreds of years ago. Uh, his most famous building was uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And uh, mm. we find Ren's father was a great admirer of his, so named his uh, named his daughter Ren in her in uh, his honor. And uh, she actually has uh, relatively little interest in uh, modern housing. She's uh, her great interest is uh, is historical, mm. refurbishing um, old houses. And and I found in my research is that, that is a that is a real profession. That's not something I made up. If a mm. house has a um, uh, a landmark status, a architect has to be specially certified in order to be allowed to work on it. So That's it's just, what an interesting job that would be. So I created uh, Ren Fontaine, who has that she's an architect, and she has a special certification to work on landmark buildings. So that is, she can modernize them without changing what makes them unique. So it's part architecture, it's part engineering, it's part, you know, being historian. Mm. And uh, so that's a profession. She works at her father's firm, but she's a sort of a one-person department who handles um, renovations of historic homes. And uh, so this is her first really big assignment. Uh, this, uh, I, uh, she's approached by the owner of this house. He no longer lives there, but um, he wants it. Uh, he wants it completely modernized and refurbished, although keeping all the great aspects about it that made it such a um, such a classic home. And uh, that's when she starts finding out the mystery surrounding it. It is plus the fact that she had the extra added pressure of her father. I remember that he he insisted yes. on knowing what's going on. That I know. Trust me, I know that the pressure of a parent. Yeah, she has a, yeah, exactly. She has a prickly relationship with him, and they are they generally fond of each other. But she uh, she still lives at home uh, after college. Mm-hmm. After she went to Columbia University, she. Uh, she thought she moved back home as a temporary convenience. Her uh, her her mother, uh, her father's wife, died some years ago. So it's just the two of them in a uh, in a Brooklyn townhouse, and uh, that he uh, he refurbished for his own use, and um, and so they live together there, and uh, so they uh, they have a little a, a bit of a an affectionate but prickly relationship. Uh, mm. She's interested in older houses. She's interested in modern ones. Uh, uh, also, she's very, uh, she's not a very strong people person, and he keeps reminding yeah. her that now that she's taking on more special assignments, she can't just work with houses. She has to work with the clients. Uh, she can't have her father always running interference for her with difficult clients. She has to learn the people side of the job and dealing with difficult clients, and, and that's more of a struggle for her. And, and I like creating that because it's more of a tension in the book. She learns not only to deal with the house, but dealing with its owners and uh, dealing with their emotions. I do know that. My dad owned a cleaning yeah. store right by my school where I worked, and I had to work there on Saturdays. Oh, uh, yes. Yes, and let me tell you, I had my sister got to use the register, and I got to beg to work in the back with the presser. Was no fun, but yeah, I'm serious. It was, and I was like this. I'm a little person. I weigh 103 pounds, and back then I was a little bit bigger. So they thought maybe I could, you know, carry the bags of work. Forget it. So I know. So who is who is Bobby? 
And what does Stephen Greenleaf, I had a question mark about him the whole time, require of him? Well, Bobby is a, uh, he's a contractor. He's kind of, you know, old-fashioned yeah, like guy. Uh, yeah, you know, old Texas guy is you know, been in the family business. He's the uh, Bobby Fiore, you know, from a very traditional, you know, Italian family, you know, Italian mm. immigrant family. And uh, he is, uh, he's very much in um, uh, opposition to Ren, not in, not in terms of uh, emotionally, because they're actually very close. But he's uh, her father's age, and he's just very different. He's a very grounded, down to earth guy, and he's a contractor on uh, all the important jobs that the Wendy um, uh, and her father work on. He's, he's the contractor. He knows all about the building trade. Uh, he has a, a standard crew he works with. And he's, uh, he's like a second father figure to Red. You know, he's very, he's very grounded. He's concerned with construction. He's concerned with, mm. uh, you, you, know, you know, concrete and, um, and uh, you know, wood and, uh, and plumbing and uh, electrical requirements. And so it's a very nice contract with Ren who looks into the emotional side of the house. Who lived here? What did these people want? What was their psychological relationship to the way the house was designed? How did the house affect them? How did they affect the house? Mm. So uh, I like that. So he's always dealing with this, this older contractor, you know, and he wants to discuss, you know, things like, uh, you, know, you know, plumbing and copper. And uh, she gets into that, too. Uh, in fact, there's a, um, she has an argument with her client, uh, who I'll get to in a minute, Stephen Greenleaf. Uh, she wants all the plumbing to be copper. Uh, copper mm-hmm. is the most expensive, but copper lasts forever. Yeah. Uh, plumbers and contractors love copper. It is extremely strong for its weight. So it's easy to install because it... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, you, can, you don't need a lot of support for it because it's very lightweight, even though it's very strong. Uh, in fact, uh, when my wife and I moved in, my wife and I live in a very old house. Our house was built in 1850, and mm. we needed some plumbing work. Uh, shortly after we moved in, they had a plumber come in, and he said he's replacing one of our pipes with galvanized uh, steel with uh, copper. I said, why are you doing that? He says, this copper's going to last forever. He says, this copper pipe will be here. He says, when you and your wife are long gone. He says, and even if some accident comes and, a, and there's a hole in the copper pipe, he says, I can put in patch on it very easily. You can't do with other things. And, you know, well, so I like I went from my own house. That's, you know, something, yeah, that's when somebody's reputable. Yeah. I know we just had a few months ago our kitchen redone, um, and the only one I would use is the person that comes to this building all the time. Well, I looked him up, and they, exactly. I couldn't believe it was really funny because I was on my radio show, and this guy said, you know, we just painted the kitchen. As soon as you get off, we want you to check it out. I was like, okay. <laughs> he didn't ask yeah, yeah. And he just said, we want to know what you think. They did an unbelievable job, and I just can't wait to do my cabinets. But you don't know how many people. You know, you walk into a house, and you walk in, and you feel the the warmth. And then I, mean, I used to walk into my apartment in Southern Boulevard, and I felt like I can't wait to get out of here. It's different. Right. <laughs> so. Exactly. Let's talk about, into that. You know, who's, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yes. this is, sometimes you just get that vibe. I don't know. Yeah. Now, this was interesting, and I cried after And this. then we have uh, our, uh, yeah, and then we have her client, uh, Stephen Greenleaf, and he's a descendant yeah. of the, uh, of the uh, Gilded Age uh, uh, robber baron who built the house. And, um, 
I mean, he still has money. He works in, uh, you know, he works in the uh, finance industry. But, uh, mm. but uh, you know, nobody, nobody's in a position to own and run this this uh, house anymore. He grew up in it, but even then, it was falling apart. And he lives in a uh, a modern apartment nearby uh, with his family. But uh, we find he has an aunt, his, his uh, father's sister, uh, yeah. who was never married, and she has lived her entire life. She's born in this house. She's ninety years old. And she continues to live in the house with a uh, with a sort of a housekeeper companion mm-hmm. who is mm-hmm. part of the same family that was servants in the house. Uh, so these are two people with a strong connection to the house, and there's just this one little suite, a bedroom suite in the house, and the rest of the house is coming apart. Yeah. They have carved out this one little suite um, where they uh, where they live, and uh, you know, so, so, you know, she's sort of like a a Miss Havisham kind of figure here, you know, she like hasn't, she's not into the modern world at all. She doesn't own a television. Uh, she only occasionally goes out of the house now with her companion for a short walk. Uh, she's just cannot, she, she, she's not been able to cope with the modernization. She is just living in the house the way mm-hmm. she remembers it and the, and the stories that her own parents told her about the house in its heyday. And uh, because she's staying in the house, Ren has to work around her. And she finds that this woman and her companion, um, um, uh, Mrs. Ryan, have secrets. And uh, they have fears about the house. And, and Ren has to work around that. Uh, you know, what is the story here? What is the, uh, what is the backstory of this house that everybody seems to keep hiding from her? Uh, you know, there's a layer of gloom to this house, you know, sort of, a, you know, in modern day New York, she finds this, this gothic environment on the Upper West Side. You know what it is also? My grandmother was like that. She, we moved in, she yeah. moved into that apartment on Southern Boulevard because somebody tried to rob the, the better one uh, when she lives around yeah. the corner. And she wouldn't move. When we moved, we said to my mother, said, you know, we have room. We're going to get you an apartment in the new building. And she said she could she couldn't move because she was used to this place, and she could mm. walk. She was she had um, cataracts. She couldn't see, so she knew how many steps to take to go wherever she had to go. And and that was said mm. because living with my grandmother was protection. Trust me, she was protection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Mrs. Yes. Ryan and Steve, Mrs. Ryan seemed she seems close to Mrs. Ryan and Agnes. I loved Aunt Agnes, but not to Stephen. And from the start, we know that there's something about this Uncle Ambrose that she's hiding. Yes, I mean, when when uh, when Ren's client is this Stephen Ambrose, and he's the yeah. uh, legal owner of the house, but he introduces Ren to to the uh, to the aunt's companion, and they are clearly very close. And the uh, companion and uh, um, uh, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Ryan and uh, um, uh, Aunt Agnes are very close, and they're clearly hiding things from Stephen and hiding things from Ren. And at one point, uh, Stephen teases uh, his, uh, about a uh, about the um, brother of the founder, a man named Ambrose Greenleaf. He's sort of the black sheep of the family, and he teases his aunt about it, and she almost has a heart attack. It's clearly a scandal. She, she's furious with her nephew for bringing up Ambrose Greenleaf in front of Red. She said, you never speak mm. about him outside of the family. How dare you? 
and like went into like startled and, and, and frightened. You know, what did, mm. what did this Ambrose do? Why is a hundred years later is everybody still so upset about him? And his portrait is hidden away in the house. And it's not with the, all the other family portraits. It's hidden in an obscure mm. bedroom, uh, you know, from the 19th century. If you want to know why, you know, what did he do? What was, what was so terrible that, that his name still cannot be spoken a hundred years later? And, uh, you know, that's part of the mystery, too. She, um, yeah. uh, fortunately, uh, Ren is good friends with an old history professor of hers. Um, and uh, she involved her, her history professor friend, who's an expert in the history of New York, and together they researched who Ambrose was and what he may have done uh, that, uh, that the family is still trying to hide a century later. And that starts to have a connection with other things that are happening in the house. There's a, there are murders yeah. around the house yeah. today. Uh, a, uh, we find a developer, someone who wanted to buy the house and develop it into a hotel, is murdered. And doesn't seem to have a direct connection with Ren, but the police are concerned. Why was this woman murdered? And she seems to have a connection. The dead woman has a connection with Ren's client, Stephen Greenleaf. Greenleaf. And the more Ren looks into it, the more she realizes that the two mysteries, the mystery of Ambrose Greenleaf, and the mystery of the murdered developer are connected in some sort of strange yeah. way. There are too many parallels. Um, and uh, and uh, then they find out, too, that uh, they find a body in the attic. And they yeah, don't know that who was it was. Scary. Someone was. Someone was stuffed in the, in the attic of that house and sealed away a century ago. Uh, it's turned over to a, uh, by, by uh, lucky chance, the uh, pathologist is also a friend of Ren's. Uh, um, they belong to a, a club of people who are interested in history and dress up in 19th century clothes uh, to celebrate uh, historical events. And he tells uh, Ren that the, dead, that the dead person in the attic and the person who was just killed were killed by the same gun. He says he can tell he has the bullets, and he says he can tell these people were killed by the same gun a hundred years apart. And that proves Ren right. It proves that she um, is right in thinking that the house is connected with two murders a hundred years apart. Um, and that's that center on a odyssey uh, that's, that's not only practical, but it's, it's emotional. I mean, she starts getting emotionally mm. connected to the house. And the idea is that this house is a character, too. And how does this house affect people? How did it affect the people not only who mm-hmm. owned it, but the people who work there and the generations of servants? Uh, you know, we should get how many servants these people had. In the 19th century, more people were employed in domestic service than in any other employment sector except farming. So most Americans were farmers. Most, that is, the largest employment area was farming in the 19th century. And number two was domestic service. Um, and that's, that's we, we tend to forget that. It's just how many people work in domestic service in the 19th century. And he starts thinking about these two parallel groups of people in the house, the owners and their servants, and how they depended on each other and how they couldn't live without each other. And that becomes part of the mystery as well. Well, wasn't she nervous about working, though? Did Ren think that she was going to be, you know, that she could be a uh, target for who, the person that actually killed whatever? And yeah, is, that got me worried. Out, 
yeah, she can't figure out the motive, and she's in the yeah. house there. And uh, her father gets a little worried for her, tells her, but she's there most of the time with uh, Bobby says he'll work out with, he'll uh, he'll look out for her, but that she shouldn't be there without the work crew during the uh, during the day. Um, but still, she gets uh, nervous, and she even finds herself being stalked one night. And uh, that turns into a, uh, an, an, another part of it. Fortunately, she's not hurt, but it turns out uh, she's badly frightened. And uh, I don't want to give away too much, but that turns out to no, be another clue. No, don't, because there are people listening. Why, why is, yeah, why is, somebody, why is somebody stalking her? What, uh, who else has a stake mm-hmm. in the outcome of this house? And she asks her client, she asks Stephen Greenleaf, what are his plans are? And she clearly is mm. in no position to, to live in it himself. I mean, nobody can live like that anymore. And he doesn't want it in a hotel. And he refuses to tell her. He just says, no, I, he says, I want this house to look the way it did when my, he says, when his great-grandfather built it. And he says, the only thing is he wants it completely modernized. You know, he wants, you know, air conditioning and modern heating and uh, modern electricity, and he wants the kitchen done up very nicely. I mean, obviously, a house like that would have an enormous kitchen. Um, so, um, you know, so, so she's working on that, so she knows what he wants, but she doesn't know why he wants it. And she mm. starts to wonder, why is he trying to keep this from me? So when, who is Perry and who is the preservationist? And then we come to a character that I'm not crazy about. Okay. Well, we have a, we have a, um, uh, a couple of other people who also have stakes in it. We have a, a, a obsessive preservationist. And there are people out there like that, you know, who mm-hmm. don't want any houses modernized, who want, you know, houses to be sort of living museums to the way they were. And you find them mm-hmm. all over. And he's, he has a small group, a small nonprofit group, and he's very concerned. Although Ren has a lot of sympathy for him, mm. she's, he doesn't want anything done to it. She says, well, you know, I'm still going to keep the house the way it is. I can't share too much with you because I, you know, I have a confidentiality agreement with my client. So she has sympathy for him, but she tells him she's still going to be working on the house anyway. And but she wonders what his ultimate goal is. If he's, if how, how you know, if he, how extreme would he go? You know, could he be somebody who is committing murder just to preserve the house? Mm. And she also finds, there was, while she's researching her client to find out what his end game is, she finds he has a connection to a uh, a very wealthy industrialist um, who seems to be pulling strings from behind the scenes. And uh, he may have a stake in the house, too. The interesting thing is, is that he also has a connection with Ren's father, who's not telling her anything. We find Ren and her father and this industrialist all have connections mm. to Columbia University. I mean, Ren's father graduated from there like her, and he's a mm. part-time instructor there in, um, in uh, architecture. So there's this enormous connection with Columbia University, which has long been a, in a very important force in New York. I mean, that goes back since the, you know, that university goes back to before the revolution. So what does Columbia University have to do with it? Because this industrialist is a huge uh, donor to Columbia. So Ren starts seeing all these connections and starts wondering if her father is keeping secrets from her as well. Mm. And that's why she wonders if she's just being paranoid, and she also has trouble reading people. 
But she's wondering if she's just not getting something, if she's seeing something. She realizes she can read, you know, buildings very well, but she's not always good at reading people very well. So she starts wondering, what is mm. she missing? Okay, so now we meet Hadley, and there's two sides yes. to this family, right? There's the Greenleaves and the Murphys. So which side is she on? Right. Well, the Murphys were the servants. She, yeah. um, uh, we find out that the founder, uh, the founder of the house, uh, the original group, well, that was the Greenleaves had been here since the 17th century, uh, married another a woman in his class whose uh, uh, last name was Vanderworth. And uh, the Vanderworths uh, were actually based on a family that I knew. <laughs> and they, mm. were the, uh, they were the old Dutch settlers. I mean, uh, many people don't realize that the first settlers in New York were not the English but the Dutch, when it was still called New Amsterdam until the uh, 17th century. Uh, so they go back. The Vanderworths are a very one of the oldest families in New York. They, uh, uh, they go back to the, uh, to the real Dutch aristocracy of, uh, so to speak, of New York, when it's still New Amsterdam. And the Vanderwolf and the Greenleaves, although connected now by marriage, were actually very different personalities. The Vanderwolfs were much, uh, uh, much, um, much less conventional. And it was considered an unusual marriage to have a Greenleaf married to the Vanderwolf, even though they were both distinguished families and very wealthy. Uh, what was the, um, what did that mean? So, so when decides he can't get any more information from the, um, about the uh, Vander, about the uh, Greenleaf, so she turns to the other side. She finds that there are still Vanderwerfs around, and she connects with one of them, who's a descendant of, uh, well, an old relative of Susan Greenleaf, who was married to the home's builder, Benjamin Greenleaf. And that's where she meets um, Hadley Greenleaf, I'm sorry, Hadley Vanderwerf, who is a distant cousin of her. Um, uh, of her client, and uh, that becomes an, an interesting angle all on its own. It does. So now we meet yes. somebody else, and you sort of like get yes. two separate personalities of Connor Ryan. Why do we get like two different sides of him? And he's a Murphy, so what's his link to the house? Everybody wants a piece of the house, but there's one thing at the end yes. that got me. <laughs> he is, he's interesting. He is. He is the son of the companion. He is uh, Mrs. Ryan, who is uh, Aunt Agnes's uh, sort of housekeeper companion, mm. and he is her son. And he has a, he also has a mysterious job that, uh, and he has an angle in the house too. He was, even though he was a servant's son, the Greenleaf saw he was a bright boy, and uh, so they funded his college education for him. And he feels both gratitude and resentment. He feels like Mm-hmm. That he's been his noblesse oblige and that he's supposed to be forever grateful. And he, so he has a, it, it's an odd thing for him. It's a mix of both gratitude and resentment. Uh, he grew up in the house along with Stephen Greenleaf, but was always made to know that he was the servant and Stephen was the master. So he has this very difficult psychological split in him. Grateful for the college education he got that gave him opportunities he wouldn't have otherwise had. But also resentful of the, of the class bridge. And it, it is a class thing. It's not just money. I mean, he's, mm-hmm. uh, he's, a, descendant of Irish, he's a descendant of Irish immigrants. Uh, they were Catholic and the Greenies were Episcopal. Uh, we tend to forget, uh, you know, just how 
um, uh, looked down upon the Irish and the Italian immigrants were in this country because they tended to be Catholic as opposed to the Protestant majority here. And that was a huge gulf, and that was a huge issue. And that's something he still feels resentful about, even all these years later. And, um, and he has an interest in the house, and Ren can't figure out what is. Yeah, Ren meets him several times because uh, he's, working, uh, he's working on the house, and he visits his mother uh, when she's uh, there, too. And eventually, he invites her to visit him in his office. And that's when she realizes that he may have another game in mind. She realizes his office is not a normal office. I mean, he vaguely describes himself as sort of a corporate research firm, but it's clearly not because she's an architect. She realizes that the door to his office is uh, is a very mm-hmm. high tech uh, uh, door that um, uh, you know that only uh, is used in banks and jewelry stores. That the glass in his office is bulletproof, and uh, she recognizes that too because she's an architect. And she wonders, who is he? He's clearly lying to her as well. So, um, uh, and he won't tell her the truth either. So, but he's got another, he's got another game to play as well. And uh, so Ren starts getting interested in the genealogy of the, of the house. And she starts exploring with her professor friend, Lavinia, what was the genealogy of all these people here? Uh, mm. Who got sent away and why? Um, and uh, she starts, uh, you know, going back to the, uh, to the uh, Vanderwerf she meets, Hadley Vanderwerf, who's very different from Red. She's, a, uh, she's an event planner. She's a uh, sort of a celebrity chef. Uh, she's very outgoing. Ren, Ren had a very um, a quiet upbringing, uh, you know, was very much a good girl, straight-A student. Hadley had a very wild teen year. She had a... Uh, uh, we find she had a drinking problem that took her a while to overcome, and now she's back on track, but she's very different from Ren. And yet the two women develop an attraction to each other, and it becomes a tentative romance for Ren, uh, even as she realizes that, uh, uh, that Hadley may be hiding family secrets of her own. Uh, Hadley does show herself willing to share some of the family history she has, and that lets Ren start connecting the family as Hadley starts helping her, figuring out what secrets the Greenleys have been hiding both 100 years ago and today, mm. and uh, you know, what that means for the future of the house. That's, that's scary, let me tell you. Yeah. So when I love when realizes, <laughs> yeah. she she's more like me. You see, you know, when, I, when somebody, if there's a question, I'll drive you crazy till I get the answer. And no matter who, how I have to go about getting the answers, as you know, I'm going to find out no matter how, no matter what I have to do. And she's like that. That's what's really cool about her is that she's not going to give up until she gets the secret. So when Ren realizes there are books that will reveal the truth about family yeah. and murders, how does she tell her story? How did you create her story without giving it away? Because that was like I couldn't put the book down. Well, thank you. But the, the idea is is that Ren realizes the secret has to do with the house. You know, other people mm. have the you know, police, you know, looking into the modern murders, and they think well, it's about people and their motives. And Ren says, you always have to go back to the house. The secret is in the house. A you know, hundred years ago and today, the secret always comes back to the house. 
and it has it has secrets in it. And the house has a grand old library, as you know, as Richmond did at that time. You know, it's fine. You know, find old books, and we find that there may be books here. We find that the owner of the house, Benjamin Greenleaf, kept diaries. Yeah. And Agnes Greenleaf uh, was a friend that was uh, very close to her grandfather. And as a little girl, he entrusted her with the diary. But no one knows where they are now. And Wendy gives the suspect they're hidden in the library. Except the library has been locked for, you know, more than 80 years. You know, ever since it started falling mm. apart, Stephen Greenleaf locked it up and pocketed the key. And it hasn't been opened since he gave it to rent so he can work on refurbishing the library. So nobody's been in this room for really a century. And gradually, when starts realizing it's the secrets of the house. It's not only the, the diaries that are buried there, but the way people related to the house. And the reason people committed murders has to do with the house itself. I mean, the whole idea of this series is that the homes that Ren worked on are characters unto themselves. Um, you know, I had a very influence, you know, very influence with that, which like um, uh, books like uh, uh, Weathering Heights and, um, you know, where the, you know, where the house itself is a, a character or uh, in Rebecca, you know, let's not, I jumped, I will command them again. Uh, you know, where the house itself is a character. And uh, those books, when I first read them, were, you know, enormously uh, yeah. affecting me and, uh, you know, very big influence. So I said, well, let's, let's do that. Let's build these mysteries around this house and let's have a sleuth that is more interested in houses than in people. So whenever there's a mystery, she turns back to the house, to the secrets that the house is hidden and to the reason people committed these crimes had to do with the house. And that's when she starts building the connection between the old murders and the new murders and, uh, and realizes that the people are committing crimes for the same reason 120 years apart. Well, before I forget, tomorrow yeah. I'm going to do the impossible, really. <laughs> I have a yeah. uh, op, the girl, the, the author of Operation Mom. What happens when your mother interferes in your social life? Get her a date to get her off the <laughs> case. And <laughs> second, and then I'm going to be on a second network, somebody else's network at eleven. I never do two and one, but Marcia Casper Cook will be here with a good story is a good story, and she's interviewing New York Times author David Putnam, and he would like me to be on the show with him. Okay. Um, on the 6th, we have one of my favorite people in the world that knocks off five books a week. Vincent Zandri will be here. We're going to talk about his Moonlight series. On the 8th, Jeffrey Wells, Devil S. And on the 13th, I am totally honored. I taught for a very long time in a tough school in the Bronx. And one of my students created Team um, Spartan Spades for young young adults, young children, and young um, teens to get physically fit and to learn how to work positively with other children in the community. It's a tough neighborhood. And Michael Taylor will be here to tell me tell us about it. And he was my student. And Michael will tell you that because of me, he became somebody. So it made me, I'm so proud. So I watched this tape, and Michael will be on. That's just part of what's coming up in March, and I'm really thrilled. So this, was, this really, 
Yeah, I couldn't, you know, I watched a tape of him, and he was one of the toughest kids in the school. He got in trouble every day, and he was in my friend's class, and my friend said to mommy, I wish my friend was still here, he would be proud. And I just <laughs> said, you know what, there's no way in all my years that I've ever had a student that's not going to be a success. And he was in somebody else's class, and I turned him around. And, well, we had we, we had things that we did after school that everybody wanted to do. If you were a discipline problem and didn't get in trouble, you got to go bowling with us on Fridays. Could you imagine taking 50 kids bowling? <laughs> I did, yeah. Uh, if you're really good, you got to play baseball and watch me umpire the game at the end of the day in the schoolyard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had positive things, and he wanted to join, and he never got in trouble ever after that because he knew better. But this is well, not I'm an, me. I'm in a family of teachers. I'm in a family of teachers. I am the yeah. uh, I, I am the son, nephew, and husband of school teachers. So, uh, so I have a lot, lot of, lot of respect and interest in any, uh, any teaching environment. I work with kids with learning disabilities, and my principal sort of said, "You're the one to do it." And I went back and got my third master's and fourth one in all of them. And I said, "You know what? I do on April 13th, everyone. I'm going to do another discussion with, believe it or not, my reading professor from college, and we're going to talk about questioning skills and how adults can ask questions of children, and the proper questioning skills of teachers." That's going to be our next one on the 13th. This is the fourth one I've done with him. He's keeping me on my toes. So this got me. There, um, not only did Connor and Stephen and all, what is this obsession with sitting at the head of the table? I wanted to sit at the head of the table after I got done. I, I wanted to make it clear that these, these houses were not just places to live. They were places to rule. And mm-hmm. you had a handful of families basically running the city at this time. Uh, you know, it was real. Um, uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a real aristocracy in, in reality, if not in name, of a of a handful of families that controlled New York at a time when things were beginning to change, uh, when things were getting different. But for then, it was still was. And the idea was that you had to. You had to create a scene. You had to, when you invited famous people over, when you had a major dinner party, you had to let people know that this was essentially a throne room. Mm. So the person who sat at the head of these tables, that is the husband who sat at the head and and his wife who sat at the foot of the table, were the de facto rulers of the city. Uh, We find out that, uh, uh, that Teddy Roosevelt once came to dinner. At uh, at the Greenleaf House, and um, so every you know, and, and and the Roosevelts were also longtime movers and shakers in the city. But these, this was a first family, and to have that kind of room, a dining room and a reception area, that you could that was impressive to people. I mean, that was an idea that goes back centuries, and I think it came to its real prominence in the in the Gilded Age, and basically the post. Civil War years, uh, up until around the turn of the century, when things began to really start to change in New York, that was that was the important way that people ran the cities. They ran them from their houses. Wow. So, tell me something about the. How did you create? First of all, who is Lavinia? I was looking through the book just now. I forgot to talk about her. Right, she's she is Wren's uh, professor friend. Her name is Lavinia Suisse. 
And uh, she was important. Ren lost her mother at, uh, when she was 19. So, um, so Lavinia became a sort of a mother figure to Ren. And um, uh, what we find is that, you know, I, 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 all my books, I always have a romantic uh, um, uh, uh, subplot in there. Uh, I find I like having that with my characters. And uh, Ren, is, uh, Ren is a lesbian, and it took her a while for her to realize and connect with that. So Lavinia was important to her in that respect, too. Lavinia was in a, is in a long-term same-sex relationship. And in fact, when, uh, when the same-sex marriages were legalized, uh, 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 Lavinia and her long-term partner got married, and they had Ren be their bridesmaid. <laughs> Ren was their witness at their wedding, and she, even though she was only 20 at the time. And so she's been an important influence both emotionally and uh, intellectually for Ren. He's a historian of New York, so Ren often consults her when dealing with these old homes because Lavinia is not an architect, but she's such an expert mm. in the history of New York City. And the families who ruled it, and the buildings that were built—that uh, she is both a friend and a mentor to Ren. And she has uh, there's an apartment uh, on the Upper West Side near Columbia University, where uh, where many of their top professors have uh, college housing. So um, so Ren consults with her a lot, and uh, so she uh, she helps Ren with the history of the house with uh, understanding the people who live there, too, since Rand often has trouble dealing with, you know, uh, people's uh, motivations. And uh, she helps Rand do researches. Uh, so I think that's a, uh, I, I was very pleased with that relationship there. It's sort of a mentoring relationship, but it's becoming more of an equal friendship. Uh, you know, Rand often refers to her as your professor. And then the video says, no, no, you know, we're friends now. Call me by my first name. And uh, so it's a, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strong and, and changing relationship. And uh, she will also be featured well in my next book, too, because I like, I like the way Ren and Lavinia work together, this older woman. And she's, uh, Lavinia is also a, um, is a colleague because she's a Columbia professor. Uh, she's also a colleague of Ren's father. And uh, so she knows the, uh, the whole family well. And so it's sort of like Ren is cobbled together a family because he's just, you know, he's an only child, he's a her and her father, but he has, you know, a fa another father figure in her contractor, Bobby, and a mother figure uh, in her own professor, Lavinia. And, uh, you know, people do that. People create families mm. themselves and they don't have a large family of their own. And so Red has managed to do that, and it works very well for her. So how did you create the surprise ending, and where do you see these characters next? Uh, you know, when I, I, don't, I don't know if other writers do this. I create the ending first. I decide when I lay out my book, I decide who did it and how they did it. And I think the most important thing is why they did it. Uh, so then I'm thinking my book so much is who done it and why done it. Um, because I think, you know, who has the motivation? I'm very concerned with, with motivations. Um, that's almost something that takes me back to... Uh, uh, my, even though I write books very, very different from his, my great, uh, my great idol in the uh, mystery world is Don Le Carre, because he wrote very psychological books. He was very concerned with people's motives. And even though I don't write spy mm -hmm. thrillers, I write cozy mysteries, and he wrote, you know, uh, you know spy world. Uh, he's my great, um, uh, he's a great person I look up to because he was very concerned with the psychology of his characters. 
and why they did things. And that's what I always try to do. When I conclude my book, I say, why did somebody do this? Because I want to thread from the first mm. page to the last page. So, we, you know, we see all the characters, and I'm thinking, who had the greatest motive to do this? Who, and, and that's, that's the third, I, I guess you could say it's the key to solving the mysteries in my books. <laughs> you want to be the first person to do it. It's to look at the motivation and see who had the greatest motives to do this. And, you know, that'll take me. That's how I decide who done it. And that's, you know, so I have that, I had that surprise ending from the beginning. And the idea was yeah, you did. to hide it. Um, and I think that's the, that's the interesting thing about it. Uh, you know, to my well, mind. What happened, I mean, tell, tell us more about Aunt Agnes. Yeah, I loved Aunt Agnes. I felt so bad for her. You know, she's funny. She, she's based on actually someone I know, an, an old family friend died many years ago. Although this, the family friend is much, much nicer than I just was. She, you know, she is still concerned with the family's great history, even though the family isn't important anymore. Uh, mm. They really don't have that kind of money anymore. I mean, this guy's yeah. so comfortable, but they're not the top of the social scale. I mean, she, she came of age when New York City was doing. New York City was filled with, you know, immigrants, and, you know, they climbed, you know, gradually they climbed up the American uh, uh, ladder and uh, ladder of success. And, you know, and we have a, such a melting pot of New York now with people of so many backgrounds, and that's one of the things I so loved about growing up in New York, with people of so many backgrounds. I'm an immigrant background itself, but people like Aunt Agnes cannot, could not cope with that. They could not cope that her family, that her group, of, um, you know, uh, it's, it's still not running things in the city. And she refuses to live like that. She refuses to mm. accept that. She can't, she can't cope in a modern world. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I, I know people like this. As I said, I had, you know, I knew an old family friend. And as I said, she's much nicer than Aunt Agnes. So I don't want to imply otherwise, but... She was that. She was from. Uh, she belonged to a, a group called the Colonial Games mm-hmm. of America. Uh, you know, of women who could uh, trace their ancestry uh, back to the 17th century. Uh, you know, she had ancestors who came across in the Mayflower. She had an ancestor who was mayor of New York before the American Revolution. And you know, and she was adaptable to it, but. She grew up, you know, as she aged, and she must be almost 100 years old. It was a very, very different world. It was a very, very different New York by the time she died than when she was born. And mm. when, her, when her, you know, parents and her grandparents were born. And, you know, and I, I started saying to get myself to the head of, you know, and it's, it's, it's like hard to say, oh, let's be sympathetic to these people. You know, they're always rich and privileged. Why are we going to waste our time seeing sympathy for people who are so rich and so privileged? And I said, yes, that's a good point, too, but nobody mm. likes when their world disappears. doesn't matter where you are. Yes, you had money, so it made it more comfortable. But it's still hard for some people to see their whole, to see their world disappearing. And mm. there's nothing you can do about it. And, you know, seeing that a whole new, uh, a, a whole world that they had known about was, is gone. And it's not coming back. And that happens, uh, that happens in other places. It happens in other cities. It happens in other countries. And I wanted to get a sense of that. So even though she is a very difficult character, 
I wanted to get some sympathy for someone who is uh, so out of time. I, I, I actually pulled the line from that, actually. I, I, I borrowed, mm. in a sense, from Agatha Christie, um, who, uh, in one of her books, she has uh, characters who are two sisters um, who are uh, still living in a home and the money's running out and they're, they just have one servant left and they were, you know, and uh, they're living here mm. in this... Um, uh, it's sort of a genteel poverty. And, uh, and uh, Ms. Marvel comments about them. Uh, she, says, uh, she says, I feel sorry for them. The world has changed, and they haven't. That's and, just sad. And uh, Agatha Christie had a very nice sense of that, uh, particularly in the Ms. Marple books, about, yep, how Ms. Marple, about how the world changed from Ms. Marple. And Ms. Marple understands that. Ms. Marple is very shrewd. She doesn't live under any illusions. Um, but uh, Ms. Wapper knows a lot of people who couldn't. And um, um, I, was, I was also moved by uh, Alistair Cook, the, uh, the journalist and writer who used to introduce Masterpiece Theater. And I, I saw an interview with him once, and he talked about friends of his who were mm-hmm. working the government of India when it was still a British colony. And, you know, you had a handful of Englishmen ruling over this entire country here. And after India became independent, they felt they had no place there, and they came back to England. And he said, one of my friends, though, had lived in England for 40 years, had lived in India for 40 years, and he couldn't adjust to moving back to England. He could only live in India. And even though India was its own country now, he moves back to India and lived the rest of his life as an Englishman in India because he was no longer English. And his world had disappeared, too. And I thought that was such a poignant story. Not that mm. India shouldn't have become... You know, its own country. Of course, it is. You know, and uh, of course, that needed to change. And I certainly agree with that. But I, you know, Alistair Cook had some sympathy for his friends as well, who had whose world had left him and had left him unmoored. And uh, he wasn't English, and he wasn't Indian, and he just tried to live out the rest of his life in some comfort. And that has always interested me as the world changed. I spent a lot of time studying history in, uh, in college. And the literature I studied was all wrong. I mean, I think it was a particular interest in 19th century British literature. And, you know, how that changed and how the world changed. And uh, that's, that's a sense I tried to get into the series. That, that's, you know, so many, so many people, you know, can't, can't deal with change and stuff like that. But the ending, yeah. the last, the last line of the book, brought tears to my eyes. It's like oh, what what Rin says about the house and her relationship with someone that I didn't expect, which she won't say what it is. I said, you yes. know what? That was just like so perfect because when I was growing up, I had to play the piano and the violin every day. <laughs> I was a concert pianist and violinist, and my sister was more like my mom. And my mom treated me a lot differently than my sister. And I often wondered, was did I really belong to you? But um, <laughs> yeah, you, I would come home every day and have twenty thousand hours of homework. And the one thing that I would love to do is practice my piano. It sort of like <laughs> relaxes you, gets your mind off whatever it is. And I, I have a photographic memory, so I was able to memorize the Waltz of the Flowers by Tchaikovsky. I don't know how, but I did. Good. Yeah, I had to play it in Carnegie Hall in front of a whole bunch of people. 
And that's when I knew. I said, yeah. Wow. And I majored in music in college, so that was another thing I didn't know I was going to have to do. But, yeah, it's amazing. So when she says that at the end, I go, yeah, that is really perfect. And if the, I wonder sometimes, what, what is what is next for you? What's coming after this one? And where can everybody get this? And it's going into the pile of give it to my journal. It's right there. Well, great. Well, it's, uh, yeah, the book's available on Amazon and, uh, and uh, other similar outlets. And uh, you can find out more about what's coming at my website, uh, rjcoretto.com. And uh, you can also sign up for a newsletter. Uh, uh, yeah, I do. I do not lose people with these letters. It uh, goes out once a week at most, and uh, you can uh, sign up and uh, be the first to know what's happening with my books. And uh, very excited about the next one. Uh, the next book, Ren, is going to go back. Well, thank you. Ren goes back even further in time. He worked in what's called a federal-style building, and these are buildings built around 1800. And New York has one of the finest federal-style. Houses still left in this country. It's a Gracie Mansion, mm. which is the official home of the mayor of New York City. And it is a, you can take tours of it. It's hard to get a tour. They only do it like once a week. And I got on a waiting list and finally got to take a tour of Gracie Mansion. And it is unbelievably fantastic. Mm. It is a beautiful, in a way, I think it's more beautiful than the Victorian houses that came later. The, 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 uh, they're very understated. And uh, to put it in perspective, this is Jane Austen time. Uh, in, in England, these houses were built at the time when Jane Austen was writing, uh, was writing her books. So, uh, you know, the design doesn't come from the ornateness of it, but from the beautiful proportions and the simplicity of the decorations. So uh, I've invented a, uh, a uh, fictitious... Um, Central uh, uh, style mansion that's uh, loosely based on Gracie Mansion, and uh, Ren is uh, been engaged to work on it on behalf of a uh, movie star who has purchased it as a retreat, and uh, he's fallen in love with this house in, uh, on, an, uh, on a fictitious island off of New York, and uh, so she starts working on this house and finds that there's a mystery about the house. And there's also another mystery connected with the uh, uh, with the uh, actor himself. People around him get murdered, mm. and she sees it's, it's it's a more tenuous one than there. But she starts seeing parallels between the house's history and the house today. And as before, she goes back to the house. Uh, you know, what is it about this house that has um, that causes people to have these feelings about it? And she realizes that a house like this is such, a, such incredible beauty. Uh, is, you know, can affect people in strange ways. And, um, uh, you know, I, I get into some American history there. Like, most people don't know that uh, Archibald Gracie, who built Gracie Mansion, was a close mm. friend and political colleague of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, he supported Hamilton. Uh, he and Hamilton were very much aligned in their political ideals. And uh, after, uh, after uh, Gracie Mansion was built, Archibald Gracie, and Hamilton held a big fundraising party to start a uh, to start a newspaper in the uh, that would put that would put forth Hamilton's ideals for the new country, and uh, that paper is still around. That was the New York Post, and the New York Post is still around today. And it was founded in yes, Great Mansion by Alexander Hamilton and R.J. Even though over the years, it's still around today. It was founded by Archibald Gracie and uh, Alexander Hamilton. And that's uh, so. You know, I, I love the way you know history connects with these uh, with these houses. 
And uh, so, uh, you know, Ren has to, uh, you know, Ren is on the scene and her father's still there. And, uh, and she, her romance has grown with, uh, with, um, uh, with her new girlfriend. And so mm-hmm. they're moving forward with their romance. And, and Ren is trying to still, you know, figure out what's going on here. She's working on this magnificent house. I'm trying to find out why somebody is killing for it all these years later. And she's dealing with, it has an extra layer of complexity because uh, she has trouble reading people's emotions. And now she's dealing with actors who are expert in hiding their real emotions. So she's got like a double layer to come to. So she keeps going back to the house. And the same characters are there, you know, her father, Lavinia, her girlfriend, uh, uh, Bobby, uh, you know, uh, Bobby Fior, her contractor are all still there. Plus, uh, very excited about some of the new uh, um, new characters for this book too, and um, you know even have some notes out for the third book. And uh, also excited to say we've also signed a contract for audio books. So uh, this spring there will be audio book version of uh, the Greenleaf Murders of people like uh, uh, like to listen to books as they commute, <laughs> and mm. um, uh, so I'm very uh, very excited about that as well. And they're available also in uh, paperback and Kindle version. Well, thank you so much. This has brightened my day. Yeah, because thank you, know, you so much. I really, really and now I get to go somewhere it. I don't really want to go because I'm being brave, but I won't say where. <laughs> thank you so okay. much. And I can't <laughs> wait to get the next one. And Gina just told me I have to send out six print copies of my book to people that most of them are reviews. I was hoping for, like, spotlight or, you know, questions okay. and stuff. And everybody wants to review, give me a review. Ay, ay, ay. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> Thank you so okay, much. Great. Everybody have a beautiful day and bye. You too. Take care. Bye.